Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh says, smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. to care with Korak. Today we have a very fun guest, really interesting episode for you guys today. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Anne Safi Biasetti. Uh, Anne Biasetti, Safi Biasetti is a licensed clinical social worker. She has been a practicing psychotherapist for over 30 years. She holds a PhD in psychology with a transpersonal concentration. She also is a certified eating disorder specialist through IAEDP, a trained mindful self-compassion and mindfulness teacher, a trained polyvagal theory therapist. Polyvagal theory, gosh, guys, let me tell you real quick. That is something super interesting. If I can get somebody who really specializes in that on my uh, you know, future season or something, I, I think you guys would really enjoy that. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about it too much, unfortunately, on, on this episode, but a little bit, so you'll get a hint of it. Um, She's also a certified MABT practitioner and a certified yoga therapist. Her doctoral research explored the role of self-compassion in eating disorder recovery. She's the author of multiple books, including Befriending Your Body, A Self-Compassionate Approach to Freeing Yourself from Disordered Eating, and The Awakening Self-Compassion Card Deck, both of which you can find in the bio of the episode. As a somatic psychotherapist, her approach to therapy is unique and informed by multiple trainings she has done throughout her clinical career. Her research, training, and passion for self-compassion practice and the power it has to change up your nervous system and your relationship with yourself, others, and your life frames all the work she does. She practices through a trauma-informed, holistic neuropsychotherapy lens, helping you to investigate and make sense of what you are experiencing in your nervous system, sensations you feel in your body, your emotions, and your thoughts, uh, and we learn together how to understand and hold all of this through self-compassion. She is a polyvagal-informed therapist, mindfulness-trained, and a researcher, teacher, and trainer of self-compassion. She has developed a unique technique, mindfulness-based embodiment, used within talk therapy sessions that allows you to become aware of patterns both in the mind and the body that may no longer serve you in life. In this episode, Dr. Safi Biasetti and I discuss uh, so many different things, including disordered eating and body dysmorphia, yoga and embodiment, what is embodiment, right? Um, and then other forms of somatic work for healing and, and just so much more. For more information on Dr. Safi Biasetti, check out her website, www.unembodiedlife.com. It's in the bio uh, or her social media at an embodied life. Make sure to check out her book on her new um, Awakening Self-Compassion cards, uh, both available on her website. Follow me at Josh Korak on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube for video clips, podcast previews, and more mental health content. If you are in a mental health crisis, please call 988, the new uh, suicide hotline number, 
or go to your nearest emergency room. If you are from Colorado and are interested in scheduling a session, please reach out at sojourncounselingco.com slash josh or email me at josh, uh, josh at sojourncounselingco.com. All right, that just about does it. Let's get into it. This is Care with Korak with Dr. Ann Safi Biasetti. All right. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the show, Dr. Safi Biasetti. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Sorry, I got a, a little bit of a I got a notification that my storage is full. I've been having too many people on the show, so um, mm-hmm. apparently it's taking up all my storage space on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> all good. Well, hey, anyways, welcome to the show. I'm really glad you could um, take some time out of your day to to speak with me and speak with my audience, and um, super excited for this. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't we just start off? Tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background and a little bit about your life. Sure. Well, I am um, practicing somatic psychotherapist here in Saratoga Springs, New York. It's um, upstate New York, about three hours north of New York City. Um, I was a city girl, though, grew up in uh, Queens, New York. And uh, so moving up here was like moving out of state for a while. But wow. uh, did that about, um, gosh, going on 17 years ago now. And uh don't regret it. It was really nice. It kind of propelled me into slowing down a bit and um, and actually gave me the ability to uh, kind of change a course in my career. I was a clinical social worker for 20 years and, you know, moving up this way, I decided I had a private practice, you know, where we used to live. And then when we moved up here, I decided before reopening another private practice that I was really going to um, get really find my path in some of my passions that I had discovered, uh, which was yoga and mindfulness Mm. and meditation. So I took some time off before reopening and I uh, started to explore the integration of yoga in psychotherapy through going to not just yoga teacher training, but yoga therapy training. Uh, in particular, restorative yoga training, and then mm. a full certification in yoga therapy. And um, it was really amazing shift for me because a part of what brought me on that path was the recognition in my own personal practice of both yoga and meditation, how it was shifting my own mindset in such a mm. great way. And that was, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, yoga wasn't that popular yet you know it's kind of like your once a week thing that you started doing and uh and what was even less popular was the understanding of the integration of the body and Mm. mindfulness so really as a therapist at the time as a young therapist at the time i was sort of like just observing this within myself you know observing Mm -hmm. all uh, that was changing in my mind in my own mindset and um And that really led me to say, well, what is happening here? And what what is this missing piece of the body? And what does it have to do with the changing states of the mind? So it really kind of propelled me on this whole path of the mindfulness training. And then 
um, going back to school for my doctoral work. Um, and by that point, I had already done uh, my mindfulness training and, and I was really um, starting to move into the space of trying to understand more about self-compassion and the work of mm. self-compassion. So when I went back for my doctoral work, you know, I had been a practicing clinician for 20 years. I just no longer saw people in the same way anymore. Uh, through my, you know, again, through these practices that I had engaged in, I started applying what I was learning with my clients in this more holistic way of looking at them, uh, sort of looking at them beyond diagnosis and beyond right. labels. And, um, and also beyond just uh, knowing themselves through one door of consciousness, you know, so here it was, I started um, playing around with integrating these skills that I had learned, uh, both through the yoga therapy and the mindfulness and really seeing how much it was shifting things for them. So when I went back to school, I picked a program that was a, a doctoral studies in psychology, but it was a concentration in transpersonal psychology. And, um, and that really took all of this together, right? It took all of the understanding of human nature, the way we usually see people and, um, and really brought in a deeper, richer experience of understanding that we are, um, you know, made up of multiple layers of consciousness and that there are different ways of accessing that, not just through the thinking cognitive right. mind state, right? So uh, so that was a, an amazing experience um, and got to research there. I had always worked with eating disorders and really wanted to find another way to work with my clients. So when I was there, I specifically researched um, the role that self-compassion played in sustainment mm. of recovery. Uh, so recovery from of, eating disorders. Yes. Recovery gotcha. from any disordered eating. Um, uh, it was a qualitative study that explored um, really the depth of the experience of self-compassion uh, for those who had identified as self-compassion being a significant uh, player mm. in their ability to sustain recovery, which is, really interesting because of the fact that so many people do what I call touch and go recovery, meaning that they, you know, maybe get rid of behaviors for a short amount of time, but they don't sustain that and they still don't feel free, you know? So this mm. research study explored the role from folks who were at the beginning stages of recovery, all the way to folks who um, had sustained recovery for 20, 30 years and felt completely at peace and how much self-compassion played a role in that. So, um, so that's kind of my background as far as work goes and my passion still lies in, um, in teaching, training yoga um, and my somatic practice uh, as a psychotherapist, as well as, teaching and training now about self-compassion mm -hmm. um, through, uh, through the Center for Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy, through the Center for MSC. I teach and train for them. And, uh, and also have, I have an eight-week uh, so, uh, self-compassion and somatic skills eating disorder recovery program. Uh, so I, I teach people uh, really how to understand how the use of their body and self-compassion uh, creates a whole different experience in them beginning to move into their recovery in a new and different way. Hmm. 
That's amazing. I mean, there's just so much that you're doing to help, you know, push this and bring awareness and to bring healing to, to so many different people, I'm sure. And um, I'm just, wow, that's amazing. You know, thank you. Thank you. That's really yeah, great. It's, you know, it's, it's lovely to kind of take the passions that I had for yeah. myself and be able to bring them in and, and help people to understand kind of what the difference is between, um, you know, just going to a yoga class and experiencing mm-hmm. that and what the difference is between yoga and embodiment, right? So really I'm an embodiment yeah. teacher is what I like to say. Um, and I like to teach people how, how they can access so much more through the uh, focus and attention of the internal mm-hmm. body. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, you know, this idea of distinguishing between what yoga is, what embodiment is, how that intersects. Um, how do you use that in your practice with therapy? Sure. Yeah. So really what I'm teaching people in my office, you know, is I'm not necessarily doing a yoga pose with them or anything like that is uh, really in all somatic work, right? And there's so many different forms of somatic um, psychotherapy now, you know, most people Mm -hmm. know Peter Levine's work, right? Somatic experiencing, right? And, and sensory motor therapy and I kind of have a flavor of um, many different types of uh, somatic intervention within the the way that I practice, but really all forms of somatic psychotherapy are taking a look at the role of the body in awareness, right? And we're all really after the same thing, which is nervous system regulation and reprogramming. Right. right? So that's really what we're looking at. So if I do use any kind of direct, let's say, pose coming from yoga in my practice, mm-hmm. it would only be um, here in New York State. I know it's different in other states, but we have to be hands off as psychotherapists, right? So we can't use when touch. you're doing the yoga. We can't use touch in our office. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so it's very strict here that way. Mm-hmm. So. The restorative yoga poses are for those who don't know what that is. It's a, it's poses that are the where the body is supported by supports such as bolsters and um, blankets and blocks, things like that. And restorative yoga is actually all about nervous system regulation as mm. well. So through the proper support of the body, we actually begin to manipulate the nervous system into a ventral vagal parasympathetic Mm. state, which is really a a remarkable thing to see how quickly that happens for someone. So once in a while, I'll use a direct pose like that when someone, let's say, is extremely anxious and they have Mm -hmm. little body awareness sometimes just by placing them in a pose like that and me guiding their awareness to their breath Mm -hmm. me guiding their awareness to um, noticing how their nervous system is beginning to shift maybe the temperature of their body um, maybe noticing how their breath started off in their throat or their chest and then after five minutes it's dropping down into their belly. So mm. that kind of languaging is actually teaching someone what we call interoceptive awareness, which right. is a neuroscience concept, right? Um, <clears throat> and that interoceptive awareness has everything to do with further ventral vagal regulation. 
So sometimes I'll do it with a direct pose like that. And other times we will do it just by accessing me sitting across from the client, being their co-regulator, me noticing perhaps how someone is seated, um, if they're tense and holding. Sometimes people don't even realize their shoulders are raised up to their mm -hmm. ears. Sometimes they have no idea their foot is moving away when they're talking. There's that nervous energy, right, that they don't even realize may be happening. So sometimes it's just a gentle recognition of the body by me that they can't um, yet see or that they don't have any connection to in that moment. And I'll say to them something like, oh, let's just see you and I together, what it's like to lift the arms up and hmm. just oh, take a breath and, and, and let the arms rest back down. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even realize I was holding like that. Um, or sometimes they say certain words and they'll repeat certain words over and over and they'll have like a hand motion that goes along with those words. And I'll very gently point that out to them, say, like, can you, you know, you've repeated that word about three times. And can you tell me, let's do that together, what you were doing with your hand and those mm. words together. Tell me what you noticed there. And they'll be like, oh, my gosh, this is where I hold everything on this right side. Yeah. So people don't even realize the connection between their current nervous system state, right? Certain words that they use mm -hmm. and the expression of that in their body, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's you know, again, I, I teach on this embodied cognition, you know, the mm -hmm. understanding of relationship between sensory experience, thoughts, and emotions. And so basically in my office, that's what we are and really all somatic work is looking at that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Is being able to kind of pull that apart a bit, you know, mm -hmm. disentangle the sensory experience from the current uh, emotion and to bring awareness into it at the same time. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so a lot of the work that I do is with trauma. And so initially, yes. when we're first starting to meet with them, it, I, I try to focus, I mean, given I, I'm still very early on in my career and learning mm -hmm. experience, but I'm trying to definitely focus more on that somatic piece. And, um, you know, what, what you're talking about with the parasympathetic and trying to move from like a sympathetic dominant to a parasympathetic dominant and, and doing some of that somatic work. So it's just really interesting to hear your approach with that and just the kindness, the mindfulness aspect. I mean, that's just so, so peaceful, uh, <laughs> you, you know, which is the goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, self-compassion, um, the really amazing part of it is that not only is it an emotional regulator, right? So self-compassion, mm. we know what the end of the day is about emotional regulation. Um, the interesting thing with it, if we take the somatic, because my favorite thing to do is to take the somatic work and the self-compassion together. That's actually what I teach on in that self-compassion and psychotherapy program. Um, and what we understand about it, you know, I'm, a, I'm also a polyvagal trained uh, therapist. And what we know about it is that when self-compassion can be delivered, so this is where as therapists, the intervention is, and the timing of intervention is very important. Because if we deliver a self-compassionate say statement even, or attempt to do mm. an intervention that is self-compassion intervention at a time when our clients are really hyper aroused, we're 
probably going to meet a lot of backdraft, you know, what we call in the self-compassion world backdraft, what what we understand as resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Because when we're in a sympathetic state, when we're flooded like that, we're in a whole negativity. Our negativity bias is high. We're in a very critical state, right? Self-critical state. And um, and we're on many of our clients, especially with, with those with trauma and with um, my clients, I work with trauma as well. Um, that's right. one of the areas I specialize in. But with my clients with eating disorders, there's a lot of self-loathing going on. Mm. And they don't want to hear anything about kindness at a time like that, you know? Yeah. So really... What we're looking to do is we're looking to regulate first, uh, right? So we're doing that co-regulation. We're looking, and that's where I use the somatic work to even get a moment of a ventral experience, even a moment. And as that mm. moment comes in, that's when we can go with the self-compassion intervention. That's when we can go with those words of kindness. And because that's when we have the accessibility right? That's when we have the accessibility to take it in. And then once we build that with our clients over and over, then when they have a dysregulated moment, that those words of kindness will be able to come in more accessible, more, right. more accessible, more readily, I should say. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's super interesting. I want to, I want to hear more about, you know, how this all interacts with eating disorders or disordered eating, which I know is an area that you yeah. also specialize in. But before we even get there, I'm, I'm curious, would you be willing to share, like, what are some of the, the interventions or what's like a common um, technique that you use pretty regular, regularly to, uh, uh, introduce self-compassion into your therapy. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a big one for it. And I'm a um, trained uh, mindful self-compassion teacher and, and what have you. And I love the program, but I'm a big one for not using like direct interventions all the time. So mm. it's not like I pull out my MSC book and, you know, read a uh, meditation or something like that. Right. Um, I'm much more, uh, relational in my approach. Uh, all somatic work is very relational work. Mm -hmm. So I really use the relationship as the base of the modeling of self-compassion. So mm. when, uh, so when someone tells me something, and, and you'll know this from your clients with trauma, because it's so hard for folks to not come into the office the moment they meet us, right? Sit down and start to tell the traumatic story, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's the number one thing that happens. But as we also know, as therapists, we're like, uh oh, that's right. I've read and I hear Bessel van der Kolk's words saying, <laughs> don't, don't say the story. It can be re traumatized. Mm. Well, what do we do? How do we stop them? How do we, you know, because mm. people are on a roll and they want to tell their narrative too, right? Right. So telling the narrative is very healing and very balancing only when the nervous system is balanced. Exactly. When the nervous system begins to heal, right? So mm -hmm. in a moment like that, the way I will bring the self-compassion in is let's say someone sits down and starts to rattle off like that, you know, I'll just say, you know, let's say, I don't know, for argument's sake, it's Jane, you know, like, hey, Jane, you know, um, I just noticed that, uh, I'm just going to interrupt for a moment because I notice as you're speaking that, speaking really fast. And I'm wondering mm. if you and I can just take a breath together. 
Usually when someone's speaking fast, it tells me that you have a lot to tell me. And I'm wondering if you and I can just slow this moment down together because I want to make sure I get to hear all of it. And we're going to, you and I are going to take this slow because we're going to do it in a different way, a different way than you may be used to telling this story because that's what you're here for. So just that alone, right? And we take a breath together. And often in that moment, tears come because. Mm. They, number one, have a nervous system release, right? They move into a little bit more ventral because they were seen and heard. They don't mm. know how to slow down. Someone helped them to slow down. And someone really attuned to them, right? Someone saw what was happening underneath all those words, right? We, I saw what was happening in their body, in their voice, in their breath, whoever watches them like that, you know? So it's like a beautiful moment of modeling the self-compassion and the, the reparenting really that they haven't had, you know? So we start that off. That's how we can start off that compassion right away. Mm -hmm. And it really sets the tone, you know? So that's yeah. how I like to just deliver it immediately. And uh, and we go from there. And it's really just based on the simplicity of words. And uh, another favorite of mine, I say this in my um, eight-week program all the time, you know, people come in and they have all these behaviors going on that they're so upset about, mm. right? And once they understand what they've been trying to manage, so psychoeducation is everything when it comes to somatic work, because people need to be educated on their nervous system. They need to be educated on what's happening in their brain, right? Why their body reacts the way it does. Mm -hmm. And then once I teach them that education, like I'll even take out like a whiteboard and I'll draw the nervous system. I do the same. Out, right, exactly. It's it's a brilliant thing to do mm. because the moment they understand that what I say to them then is, hey, out of fairness, how could these behaviors not be going on? Mm. Right? You're dysregulated yeah. every day. You feel dysregulated day in and day out. Is there ever a time you feel safe? Is there ever a time you feel grounded? What is that? Mm. Right? What yeah. does grounded mean? You know? <laughs> Such a buzzword, but do we actually even know what exactly. it means? Exactly. That's what I tell people all the time. That you know, I tell people that um with their breath too. I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, proper breathing. What do we even mean by that? And instead I say to them, let's feel proper breathing let's mm. go ahead and feel what proper breathing feels like yeah. right yeah that's very similar to what i do that you know that's that's one of the early i mean it's such a simple skill and i tell them this i'm like it almost seems kind of cheesy or kind of funny it's like oh let's do some deep breathing yeah when we actually do it and when we do it well that's right it works it's that's funny how funny. it happens exactly <laughs> exactly that's what i say all the time it's like well, let's feel what that feels like. And then, you know, we can mm. go from there, right? Because then we have a whole conversation going about the breath that, you know, people didn't even know they had access to before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So good. Um, well, I'm curious if we can transition slightly and, and sure. take all of what we've just talked about and start to incorporate it into this talk around eating disorders, right? Or disordered sure. eating. Um, however one, we want to label one it. One moment. I'm sorry. I'm distracted because it's saying low battery on my computer. Oh, yeah. No worries. For some reason, if you could give me one moment, I'm going to find a different plug. No, yeah. Take Please your time. Go. 
Thank you. Do the what you got to do. No worries. Seem to be working. <laughs> <clears throat> there we go. I was plugging it in, waiting to hear that sound, and it wasn't going off. So. Right. No, you're all good. <laughs> now I it's that, plugged so. in. All right. <laughs> so, sure, tell me the transition to... Yeah, well, I'm just curious. Can we, you know, the, a big focus of my podcast is, is like you said uh, earlier, is, you know, uh, we need to be focusing a little bit more on that psychoeducation, just bringing awareness. And um, I'm curious if we could just start out really simply, like what are eating disorders or disordered eating, or what do we even start to call these, these yeah, experiences? Exactly. Yeah. And I like, uh, I like actually even what you said, what do we call these experiences? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I really, um, I really like to explain to my clients that that's what it is. Right. So, so I look at all eating disorder behavior as really just ways to adapt, right? Adapting to an internal system that um, that really feels unsafe to live in for whatever reason, right? So uh, across the board, you know, I always identify we're talking about the main eating disorders that we all easily know about, right? That are in the, you know, typically hear about, right? Anorexia, sure. anorexia nervosa, Bulimia and binge eating disorder are your three um, most diagnosed eating disorders. Mm. But then we have um, we have eating disorder not otherwise specified, right? NOS, where you're like, hmm, maybe the person has some disorder yeah. eating, but they don't quite fit into these categories, right? Right. And where does uh, body dysmorphia play a role in that? Is that yeah. considered an eating disorder? I don't even know. It's it's part of um, disorder eating meaning well i should say that body dysmorphia doesn't always lead to um necessarily disordered eating it right. tends to you you will always see body dysmorphia in all of the categories all of the diagnostic interesting categories. People yeah have body dysmorphia and part of the reason we see that especially uh we see that a great deal of course in anorexia where people lose the ability to see literally see their body um in the size that it is right although anorexia mm. happens in all sizes and shapes and forms right right um but what part of the reason what happens with um any kind of body image disturbance is again when our limbic system is really on fire right so when we have a nervous system dysregulation and our limbic system and our brain is um is really triggered right set off mm -hmm. we cannot perceive image properly right so the parietal lobe receives messaging from that whole limbic mm. system and so physically what, we can't we can't yeah. see things in the way that they actually are that's right especially so no matter if we're not willing to it's just we right. can't that's right especially wow. when it comes to our own body right it's part yeah. of the reason we all have we all have body image you know uh disturbance right by by way of living in this world right because we live in a culture of mind body divide and we live in a culture that constantly marginalizes and oppresses bodies um especially mm. those of you know of of color those that don't fit into a certain shape and size according yeah. to what the standard of beauty is in the moment, right? As we know, it's constantly changing. So 
everyone across the board has some level of body image disturbance, you know, based sure. on that. Um, and then we add into it. So body image is, you know, is born from internalized beliefs. It's born from um, perception, right? So perception of what we see out there in the world and then self-perception. Mm -hmm. And then it's also born from what we are feeling in the moment. So I mm -hmm. kind of use this quick little thing with my clients where, and, and in the program where I say to them, think of the last moment of joy that you had. Last moment of joy, like you were like, really, like maybe even a smile comes to your face when you recall it, right? And I asked them to consider, you know, what were they doing? What were they doing? Where were they? Where, where, where were they doing? Who were they with? And then I asked them, were you thinking about your body image at that moment? Hmm. And it's so rare, if ever, that I have heard someone say, oh, yeah, I was joy-filled and upset about how, you know, the look of my thighs or, you know, joy filled and upset about, you know, what my stomach looked like in that moment, you mm. know, it's an, it's often an either or experience, you know, meaning that especially when they report what they were joy filled with, it usually has to do with how their body was playing a role in action of some sort. That Interesting. Could you, event. Yeah, could you give an example of that maybe? Sure, yeah, I had uh I had a per you know, a young woman in my program who once talked about um being uh terrified to put on a bathing suit, right? And she mm. uh, hadn't put one on in years, but she and her partner was somewhere and they wanted to go jet skiing. And she didn't want to go because she didn't want to put on a bathing suit. So here she was about to miss out on a joy and connection with her partner, mm -hmm. right? And the joy in life, a connection and embodied experience, which means living through the sensory experience in the moment, right? She was about to miss out on that whole thing, but because she was in the program, she was like, you know, the words were going around in her mind with me teaching all this stuff. And she was like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. So she was highly activated when she first got in that bathing suit, first got on the, that jet ski, um, but then she was in the moment, wasn't she? She was fully embodied. She started mm. to laugh and have a great time. And she said while she was on that jet ski, she completely forgot in that moment what she was so disturbed about beforehand, right? Because she had to be so in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so everything else fell away. She was truly embodied. She was holding on. She was, you know, feeling her muscular strength. She was feeling the strength of her legs. She was feeling the joy, the laughter. Mm -hmm. She fell down. She got up, you know. And afterwards, not saying that she was pleased with her body image afterwards, sure. but the experience of the moment and understanding how her emotional experience fed into her ability to be alive in that moment and understanding this concept that I always teach people, which is feelings over image, you know, that when we're having a stuck moment that way, I want them to go back to, you know, what am I emotionally experiencing this whole day in this moment? Because the truth is when we're not feeling so great, we're not going to be thinking we look so great either. It goes mm. hand in hand. 
you know, so experience yeah. of joy and being in joy. We forget about these other disturbances for momentarily. Feelings of depression, sadness, loneliness, guilt, you know, shame. Can imagine that that is not going to be a place where we're believing we look so grand, you know? Right. So, yeah. so body image disturbance is going to be caught up, you know, in all disordered mm. you know, across the board, all right. the diagnostic categories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it just sounds like there's just so many different ways that this can, can take shape. I mean, and really just speaks to that individual experience, right. That we can't, I love, I love that you brought that up earlier. And I think this is definitely a trend I'm seeing in, in clinicians and practitioners everywhere that we're, we're trying to push away from this, you know, hard labeling that the diagnostic system implements and yes. um it's not just a disorder it's not just a, a label we we can't yeah. just limit ourselves to that and that's so difficult yeah um, it's such an important thing too because especially with our clients you know with eating disorders they have such shame about this uh to begin with and so mm. much self-loathing about the self-harming behaviors yeah. that to you know the first thing i say to my clients is you know you, you we we're going to understand that this isn't an individual issue. This is number one. This is impacted in a huge way by our sociocultural messages. Yeah. So that was one of my next questions. You know, what role do peers and media play in, in the development of this? So I, mm. I not only do a huge amount of psychoeducation about their nervous system and brain, right. But I do a huge amount of psychoeducation about our culture and our mm. disembodied state in our culture and uh, the role that bodies um, play out in the world and how yeah. bodies are treated out in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very real thing. I remember it, you know, and, and by no means that I have any sort of just regular disordered eating pattern. I'm not trying to put myself uh, in mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of box or anything like that. But I remember when I was younger, just feeling the pressure of like, oh my God, I got to have like the biggest muscles and I got to be like the, you know, the guys I'm seeing on screen of all these That's superhero right. movies I'm watching and feeling the pressure from friends of like, oh, well, girls want guys who have six packs and who have, That's you know. Right you know, those really defined chests. And like, if you don't have that, then what are you doing? And it's, it's just so interesting. Like, cause then where do those messages come from, That's right. uh, from the friends who are, who are hearing that? And Exactly. And that's mm. a big piece, you know, we bring in also, you know, that these, you know, these internal, the way I describe eating disorders is I don't say disorder. I say dis order, right? Mm. So we have a disordering inside. So it's a disordering through these messages. It runs across all genders. So I'm glad you yeah. bring that piece up because that is the targeting. You know, remember that the diet culture and diet industry out there in the beauty industry is billions and billions of dollar industry. I think the last wow. you know, number was something sick, like $7 billion industry. Stop. Yeah. Is it really? Yep. And that is, remember that there's a whole team of brilliant marketers behind this industry mm. that will do everything from finding out the times of day 
and the day of the week that people feel worst about themselves, especially women, those identified as women. Yeah. And they will target messages, those Instagram ads, those Facebook ads, everything else, target that kind of messaging exactly in those moments right and we know too yeah that you know okay how are they going to get across to those gendered male you know identified as male well they were going to get across by saying you can have a bigger body you can look like that superhero right Mm -hmm. it goes right to so um sonia renee taylor i'm not sure if you if you've heard of her she's a brilliant um um poet and uh activist uh she Mm. wrote the body is not an apology uh Mm. she is a black woman and uh again an activist in this uh in the uh, realm of uh, body image and body um neutrality, body positivity. And she has a brilliant statement that she says about this whole diet industry and beauty industry. She says that it's an industry that can only exist based on an individual's shame. She calls it the body shame profit Hmm. index. And it's so true. And this is where self-compassion has everything Mm -hmm. to do with not just helping an individual free but breaking down a system an oppressive Mm. system right because it is it is a system that can only exist based on shame right it's it's a system that exists based on on us not feeling like we measure up Mm. that we're not good enough of course that we're not which is the whole message of shame It's the whole message. It's the whole Mm. internalized belief, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a powerful piece. And this is where I often like to say to folks, if you can, if you can learn what's happening in here, inside your body, right? And that's that interoceptive awareness. If you can learn the messages from your body, Mm. if you can learn what you're sensing, what you're feeling, then you don't have to rely on external messages right you don't have Mm. to rely on external guidance right like oh this is the way you should eat this is the way you shouldn't eat this is you know the way you should exercise this isn't the way you should exercise instead you befriend your body hence the title of my book right right friend your body and you learn to listen and be your best friend, right? You learn to listen to what your body wants for you to do. Does it want you to be in a gym five hours a day, you know, building that six pack? Or does it want you to be out, you know, in nature? I don't know, walking your dog. Yeah. You know, Mm. this is what so so that whole industry robs us of embodiment. As a matter of fact, they're terrified of embodiment. Because if people embody, right, if people bring their mind and body together, listen in, sense, feel, get Mm. directed by that internal messaging, we won't need them anymore. Mm -hmm. We won't need to pick up that next diet magazine or, you know, hop on Noom or whatever, you know, we won't need it. (laughs) And for me, I mean, it's, it's, 
obviously not a simple answer, but for me, the question is just like, what is so wrong with, with that? Like, what would be so bad about that? Obviously it'd be bad for them because they're losing that business. They're losing, but what, why would it be so wrong for us as a culture, us as a society and as, as a community to move away from this, this business of shame, essentially? That's right. Well, you know, this is where we circle back around to yoga and the spiritual traditions, Mm, right? Because we look at the spiritual traditions at the heart of them, what they have at their core is a non-duality, right? They don't have Mm. the Western duality of mind and body that our culture was built on. The Western culture was built on the paradigm of the mind-body divide, right? That dualism, right? Um, And the spiritual practices, right? The Eastern spiritual practices, you know, is part of the reason Carl Jung studied them even, right? He was looking search for non-duality, right? And Mm. so they, they have at their core the body is, my goodness, in mindfulness, anyone who's done mindfulness training understands that the body is the first foundation of mindfulness, body and breath, mm-hmm. right? In yoga, it's body as the vehicle, as the source, you know, it's mm-hmm. body as the source of spirituality, body as the source of enlightenment, right? In both Buddhism and in in Hinduism, you know, the body is the vehicle that we move toward samadhi, transcendence, enlightenment, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, right? Right. So we circle back around to understand what are we doing in those practices. So even even if someone comes to a yoga class, let's say for you know one class, part of what we're doing is we're directing the mind into the sensory experience of the body now Mm. a 200 hour trained yoga teacher may not know they're doing that even they know that they're giving people a beautiful experience in their body right right but if i bring this somatic psychotherapy work to the mat which is what i do for Mm -hmm. folks when i teach my classes i i'm pointing out to them what we are doing here right what we are doing is we are bringing your mind and your body in connection in this moment there's so much happening in here from that including nervous system regulation and that's part Mm. of that beautiful feeling at the end of a class because things are in a ventral state right we're in a ventral state and we leave in this connected place so why do we have such um an unfortunate experience here mm. uh, because our culture was built on duality, not on yeah. non-duality. And that's why I often say, if we want to prevent eating disorders, we better start really, really young, really mm. young. Like I'm talking, we are all born embodied beings. Yeah. We're all born sensing, feeling embodied beings. That's good. When the higher mind comes in, that's when we're in trouble, right? Because Mm. that's when we start getting pulled out and away and we get externally influenced right away. So how do we build, you know, these positive embodied experience? Well, number one, we allow children to be in their bodies, right? Let Mm -hmm. them stay in their bodies as long as possible. Let them be in nature, things that connect them to their sensory experience. 
video games don't connect them to their sensory experience. I hate to yeah. say, you know. No, I'm and there with you. Outdoor leadership minor right here, so I'm all about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, music does, dance does, mm. you know. Um, non-structured, though, right? We're so yeah. big on throwing kids into a lot of structured things mm. with their bodies and performance. Now that's not very embodied. Performance is not embodied, but yeah. freedom in their body is, you know, running mm. on a playground, swinging on a swing, doing free form dance, you know, and I'm not saying those things are bad performance, uh, you know, activities. I'm just saying that they should be in, in moderation with these other embodied experiences mm -hmm. you know um, they should be in moderation with how do you listen to your body from the start both with food and with exercise mm. you know how do we teach our children to stay with the internal communication children by nature are beautifully embodied and they will actually talk body language right they'll be mm. they'll actually say yeah. like you know my arm has a boo-boo you know <laughs> right um their arm hurts, right? We as adults yeah. grow up and we're like, we're not even connected to what the body may be experiencing, wow. right? Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, this is all such great points. I mean, it's it's just so, so interesting to see, you know, what we prioritize, you know, especially for children, right? You know, what, um, where the focus tends to lay, you know, in their development and um, super interesting to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, so that's really when we look at, you know, eating disorder um, treatment and understand it, you know, I keep saying, how can we bring the body back in, mm -hmm. you know, as a central focal yeah. point, not through image, but through right. sensory experiencing. Is that... Is that a pretty central concept when it comes to treatment for eating disorders or well, what is, what does treatment look like for eating disorders? Yeah, treatment focuses, uh, the, the standards of treatment, um, thankfully have been moved more to family-based treatment, especially for anorexia, which is great to hmm. hear because we need that. It, I always say it's, it's never an individual experience. It's a family experience and we need to have the co-regulation of the family, right? We need to help you member regulate yeah, and interesting that together so family-based treatment is really uh the standard of care for anorexia for those living at home of course um and then you know the other the other treatment protocols right now the orientations that are most used are cbt and dbt and i'm not mm. saying that they don't have a place however we know that when there's so much dysregulation happening internally, our cognitive functioning is just not yeah. on board, you know? It literally can't be, right? It our our executive be. functioning, exactly. prefrontal cortex starts to shut down. So exactly. that's where that somatic therapy yeah. is really coming into play. Exactly. So really, mm. I, I, I teach this a lot um, in saying somatic work and, and the skills of self-compassion can be integrated into any theoretical framework. So it's really learning more skills as a therapist to use these interventions in the beginning and then begin to use your cognitive and your DBT mm. work, you know, and the relational work should never be left out of the picture. It's central. Mm. The problem is with a lot of our treatment these days, um, because it's so short term, uh, you know, this is the problem is often we don't get to build 
that mm. real central co-regulating piece of the relationship that we need with our clients. Yeah. So anyone short, who, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say short term in what sense? How, how long is treatment typically? Well, you know, if we're talking residential care, you know, most insurance plans at this point in time mm. are not paying for more than a month or, you know, top six weeks or something right. like that. So then going back to money and, and that's money right. being the yeah. deciding factor when it comes to some of these things. That's so right. difficult. Exactly. Mm. So, you know, so again, the integration, you know, I, I say even when someone though is in a residential center, let's say they can be integrating this work right from the start by teaching them once again, like you and I were just saying, giving them the psychoeducation about their body, their nervous system, their brain. And some centers are doing that now, which is excellent. Mm. And also by giving them the education on the sociocultural influence, right. which is incredibly important. Yeah. That's it is really important, and I'm glad to see it's it's changing. It sounds like, but it's it's slow change, just like many things. And, That's right. Uh, That's it's right. tough. Um, how do we start to empower uh, the general public, right? For my listeners who are listening, um, what can we be doing to kind of help support this? Help support those who we care about and love, who may be struggling with something like disordered eating. Yeah, so one of the main ways that we can support someone is by truly seeing them, okay? Meaning that one of the things my clients, you know, hate the most, and I really heard this in my research a great deal, is that everyone around is scared, you know, and that's fair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are scared when they see someone suffering a great deal and they see their body changing and what have you, and people are struggling and suffering. And those around them tend to focus on that and that only. What are you eating? What are you not eating? Don't eat this or eat this, right? And everything is focused on the behavior and we lose sight of the human underneath, you know? Right. So, so many of my clients say, and this is really where the self-compassion begins, is compassion from another, right? So in other words, what would it be like to say to someone we care about, you know, like, hey, are you okay? You know, you don't see mm. yourself. You don't yeah. see yourself. One of my participants told me that someone, the, her chain, her big turnaround, her turning point was when someone came to her and said, you've lost the sparkle in your eyes. Mm. Are you okay? Now, that's a whole different way of seeing someone. That's like what yeah. I said about my client earlier, right, who mm. comes in chatting away. And I say, let's take, you know can you breathe? Let's take a breath together, right? So it's really seeing someone beyond just their suffering yeah. and saying, I want to, I want to know you again, you know, what happened to you? Are you okay? Mm. And so meeting them with that kind of concern and compassion as a person allows them to say, Hmm, is this stuff getting in my way, you know, am I losing me? Right. So it gets them to be able to, what I, I write about this in my book in chapter two, I say, how do we bring compassion in from the outside, you know, mm. and let it water the seed of compassion within us? Well, we do it when people see us for who we are beyond mm. our suffering and that's how we then begin to water that little seed of compassion within because yeah. it makes us then say, oh, you know, 
maybe they're right. Maybe I have lost myself somewhere here. Right. Yeah. It takes that intentional relationship. Yeah, mm. exactly. Exactly. So that's one way. And the, the other way that I point out is, is, you know, just as a whole, let's say we're not even talking about, let's say we're talking about looking at this systemic piece, you know, that is so dangerously oppressive to all bodies, you know, especially our young people coming and growing up, you know, into this world, you know, mm. let's stop the participation as adults, let's stop the participation in these systems, you know, watch as parents that you're not bringing these diets into the home. Watch that mm -hmm. you're that you're holding yourself accountable and standing strong yeah. up against these systems. Watch that we don't participate in that language. When you know how often you're out at a party, and someone's mm -hmm. like making comments about bodies, right? About body size, right? Mm -hmm. I just I just saw a client yesterday who is suffering terribly from an autoimmune disease. And happen to lose weight from this awful disease that is taking that could take her life, actually. Yeah, wow. And she said not one person says anything to her but don't you look fantastic? You lost all that weight. Wow. And so this is how this is how embedded we are in mm -hmm. it that we can't even see a dying body because we're yeah. so focused on the pursuit of thinness and body size. Yeah. It's you know, and that's a, that's a great, I mean, that's a whole nother topic that, yeah. that we're hinting on this idea of the diet culture. Yes. I mean, we're running out of time, but yeah. uh, you know, what are some alternatives to that? Like what are, how do we push against that and how do we look for alternatives that are healthier? Yeah. So the alternatives are really beginning your own curiosity about uh, the mind body integration. And it doesn't, mm. you know, um, it doesn't have to be yoga. I tell any, everybody, find your own way. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of options out there. A That's a lot of options. Yeah. I mean, so many of my clients uh, swim because mm. the water in the water is a beautifully mindful, rhythmic movement in their body. Yeah. Walking. I love to walk with my dog. You know, that's my thing. You know, that my dog mm. is always keeping me present, you know, mm -hmm. through the moment that we being in nature, I love to hike, right? So yeah. um, find your own way to stay deeply connected and be curious about not just what you want to do up here from the mind, but be curious in that day. What does my body want to do? You know, mm. ask the question. You know, I tell people, let's communicate with these bodies. So that's yeah. how we can begin. And maybe you find a lovely structured, you know, uh, activity or something that, that brings you closer to it. I have someone that does pottery and, oh, and just, yeah. And just the ability to be, that's an amazing sensory mm. experience, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, so we're really, we have to break out of the box of mm. what we've been taught to believe um, our bodies should be doing. You know, mm -hmm. like a gym putting on. I don't even own a pair of sneakers. <laughs> oh, no I, don't, I don't. I don't go to a gym. I don't own a pair of sneakers. So, so we have to break out of the box around what we believe body should be doing for movement, and just mm -hmm. instead find the movement that brings us joy, and do more of that. Beautifully said. Yeah. <laughs> This has been super, I mean, just amazing. It's been super informative, very interesting, very mindful base. Mm -hmm. um, 
I always like to just leave it open. Do you have any kind of words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to my audience? You know, I really just like um, what I say to my folks all the time, which is you, you actually know what you need to know. You just mm. need to be pointed in the direction. That's all. Yeah. The answers are in there. Mm. <laughs> well said. Thank you, Dr. Safi Biasadi. Really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me.